This morning, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 15, as we talk about hope. This is, I just do want to confess, uh, a lot of this is just from the album Brad Watson Greatest Hits. So I do want that to just be known. If you're like, oh my gosh, I've heard this phrase before, that means you're really smart and you remember things. It makes me feel good. So if afterwards you're like, oh, I remember you said that before, it makes me feel like I wasn't just speaking to the void for the last years. But also just feel like it's just a really timely moment. And we'll also reflect a little bit about what we shared that night a few weeks ago for the, for the church for the year. So this is Romans chapter 15, verses 5 to 13. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church, and he says this, he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God that we've already, with one voice, done that this morning. And then he says this, he says in verse seven, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promise made to the patriarchs, that's Abraham and Sarah and on and on and on, but it says might the promise given to them might be continued or confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It says, as it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. And again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, it says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And then again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Then he says in verse 13, may the hope of God fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Yeah, I believe that hope in Jesus is not a thing that you can achieve or conjure up. I don't think it's something that you can even put on a personal formation plan. This year, I'm going to become hopeful in Jesus. This year, I'm going to actually achieve that next level, like we're playing some sort of game on our little phones of like, oh, if I collect enough candies, then I'm going to move on to the hope level. It's not like that. What Paul is describing here is that hope is something that comes from the God of hope, that that he's the originator of a living, lasting, foundational hope and aspiration. He talks about how long ago God took these Jewish people and made them a people of promise so that like the glories of God would be known to all people and that every generation of Jewish people had this onward looking towards a promise that's now come. And then he says, That hope is now arrived in Jesus, but we still look forward to another hope. So I pray that you will have that hope poured out to you from God. Uh, And so I do believe that that's what happens. And this morning, I want to encourage you to have more confidence in the hope that you have received in Jesus. I think sometimes we believe like, oh yeah, I hope, like as we sang, that one day God will make all things right, all things good, that that's a, that's a thing that I long for, I have hope in it, but then we kind of see that hope 
taken apart piece by piece as we go through life, and we're like, that's a good hope for that thing, but I need a new hope for another thing. Like, I need a new hope for getting through the next day. I need a new hope for whatever's happening in our world. I need a new hope for my career. But I believe that what Paul is saying here is that God would fill us, the God of hope would fill us with joy and peace as we learn to trust him, and then we would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to walk through a few truths, a few things that are real like, my brain's active. This is really fun. Thanks for getting my brain going. But you don't have to read it. Uh, I'll speak it to you. And then, but I think that the way that it actually works is that reason, when we apply reason, because I want you to have confidence that you can hope in Jesus. The way reason works is it actually confirms our belief. So one of the top apologetics in the world, he used to live here. He moved to Houston. Everybody moved to Houston from, anyway, he used to live in Southern California. His name's William Lane Craig, and he's like debates the top atheists of, in all of the world. He like was recently in a debate at Westminster Cathedral, like last fall, debating three atheists and just him as a theist. But this is what he says, like his books are masterful. His articles are peer reviewed by scholars who don't even believe what he believes. He's that smart. He's really, it's so smart. He has three names. He says that reason, all reason can do is confirm belief. All the stuff that he does is actually for the Christian confirming what the Holy Spirit has already revealed to be true. So I just want, that's what Paul is even saying here, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might have hope. And all throughout the, the New Testament, they talk about reasons for hope, that the apostles, the writers of the gospel give reasons for why you can place your trust and hope in Jesus. But all through it all, it's the spirit that actually gives hope, that gives belief. And then all that, those reasons and rationales, all they do is confirm what we already know to be truth. And so knowing is actually by the power of the spirit. So that's, that's my big prelude. And I hope that you kids really grabbed hold of that. So in, in 2000, a Stanford sociologist, now he's at Princeton, he's an international affairs political science specialist, his name is Francis Fukuyama, but in 2000 he wrote what's now, I think, considered a prophetic book. So it was in the year 2000, and he wrote this book called The Great Disruption. What he said is, with the end, this is a summary of his book, that with the end of all meaningful community, so he was looking at what was happening, he's like, oh, all meaningful community, relationships, that's all kind of coming down. He looked forward and he said, with the rise of individualism, like we think we're individualistic now through the 90s, we're going to be way more individualistic in the future. He saw the, the distrusting of institutions, of media, of all of those things, of political parties would just be on the rise as people who grew up in broken families or dysfunctional families would grow up to be adults and not trust any other thing or family. He saw forward that there would be a higher level of crime as people become more desperate. He talks even in that book about white-collar crime, like people stealing against each other at the highest levels, that, that the crime of the future would look like nice pressed shirts in leather mahogany-laced conference rooms, not so much on the streets. And he said that through social media, and this was like just in the very beginning, he's just, he's foresaw this world in which we would become rugged, individual, isolated people. 
and that we would also become greater, greater, we'd have a greater awareness of disasters, of conflicts all over the world. We would know about diseases all over the world and that we would, this is the great disruption, spiral into despair and confusion. That that's the end result of all of that. And this is what he kind of concluded really optimistically, tongue-in-cheek. He said, in a world in which we no longer believe family, finances, and fame repair what's broken within us, we ask, is there anything to hope for? So he looked forward and he's like, we will ask, is there anything for us to hope for? And this is one of my, you know, kind of fundamental, I'll stake my whole life on it kind of thing. The question, the preeminent question of our generation of this time is not about the existence of God. It's not about how the cosmos came to be. No, like the sincere doubt of our generation of this moment in time is, is there anything to hope for? Is there anything that can change me and the world? Because we're not really putting our trust in fame or in our families that we're gonna raise. We're not putting our trust in our careers, our finances, any of those things, because we know they're false. And so now we're at this end of the line road where we ask, is there actually anything out there that we can hope for? Uh, Even this reality of hope is a primal kind of aspect of humanity. Uh, We hope beckons us to long for a horizon. That's like part of who we are in the primordial spirit. I'm sorry, my vocabulary is way disconnected to the children. I apologize. Are, <laughs> Caleb forgave me. Is that what you just said? No, okay. It's a core part of our survival, hope. Hope steers us. From the beginning of time, humans have looked to the next sunrise, the next piece of land that they can discover, the next river, all of those things over the mountain's edge. From birth till death, we are humans, people of hope. Who do you want to be? Where should we go? These are all hope questions. How should I live? How do I want them to live? How should I spend my life? What should I buy? Who do I vote for? Who do I want to be around? How should I behave? What should I eat? Who should I love? All of those questions are fundamentally questions of hope. Like the answers are only found in what you hope comes on the other side of those questions. We inherit, actually, most of our hopes from our family. Like, we get a bunch of hope from our family. Like, what they hope in, that's what we hope in. Or what we think that they didn't do well in, we hope for the opposite. A lot of our hopes we steal from friends. They're out there telling us what we should hope for, we take it. Or we absorb hopes just from the people around us. But here's the the tragic part and why I care about this topic so much, is if you do not examine your hope... uh, your hopes will like absorb you. Unexamined hope will spend your life. So the very least that any human can do in this world is figure out what it is that you hope for. It's actually the the bare basic thing that you actually need to understand is what is it that I hope for? Hope is both the things that you long for and it's also the means by which they come to fruition. 
So if you hope for a certain type of society, then you'll align all of your tasks, all of your spending of your money, who you vote for towards that type of society. Hope is not a neutral thing that you have some journal in your house and you write out, these are my hopes and dreams, and then you don't live that way. We all follow our hopes. For the person who grew up in a Christian-leaning culture, which might be most of us, if you grew up in the Western culture, there's likely for you a deep disappointment or even despair at times because it can feel like the hope that Christianity gave to you is lacking some sort of transcendent power for you. If you grew up and you can think back on youth group meetings or things like that, you might pinpoint the hope that you was communicated to you was make sure that you avoid these certain things. The hope in your life, the hope that you can have is to make sure you don't do this. And then you grow up and you realize, oh, the people telling me we're doing those things. And you're like, oh, that's not a transcendent hope then. Or if you like listen to pastors preach on politics, you might have this feeling within you that, man, Christianity might be really weak. Like if, if all of like the Christian hope is dependent on what happens on an election the first Tuesday of November every four years, if the whole of Christianity is pinned on that, this thing must be super weak, right? And so you might have grown up to be like, ah, oh, I don't really know if the hope of Jesus is worth it. Surely it must be feeble. Uh, or you kind of look at some of Christian culture. We try to be very culturally relevant and like, well, we're going to make cool movies too. Or, you know, the pastor will look cool. And I apologize because I do look cool. <laughs> but, and I don't want to be part of your, you know, deconversion story one day. But we think, Oh, if, if Christian culture can be super cool, like if you like Kendrick Lamar, then you're going to really love this rapper from, you know, the suburbs of Dallas. <laughs> if that's, you might look at all that, you mean, I don't know if the hope of a sovereign God who works through all empires and times and across all cultures, if that's what you're saying, but then you're acting as if Christianity has to be relevant to matter, maybe it's not a really big hope, right? The longing for churches to be bigger and bigger and to come to scale and to have their little spots all over town, kind of like a Home Depot business plan. You might think, ah, is the hope of Jesus actually big enough if that's what it is? And so depending on how deep you were into Christian culture or to the church, you might be left with hopes that proved to be false or dead on arrival. I was part of that big church that had multiple sites and it doesn't you know, exist anymore. It's not healthy anymore. Ultimately, if you were raised in the cultural West of the last 40 years, you've likely encountered a Christian message that was not transformative, uh, that was, was hope and recruitment, Hope in growth, hope in influence, hope in power, hope in battles to be won in a culture war. And maybe, just maybe, you've never encountered a hope in transformation that raises broken things to life or takes dead things and makes them living or shattered things and makes them whole or can turn war into peace or can turn grief into celebration. Scott McKnight, a really great professor, 
says this in one of his books. He says, if the gospel you're preaching isn't about transformation, you aren't preaching a biblical gospel. That's actually a little quote I have in my desk that's very dirty. And I have it just there to look at often when I'm preparing my... If, I'm, if you're not preaching a gospel that's transformative, you're not preaching the gospel at all. As a pastor, so just this is my insight, uh, I think the mass exodus of people saying, you know what, the church is not very great, and people leaving the church. I don't really like deconversion YouTube blogs or whatever. What are they called, blogs? I'm cool and relevant. I don't really like a lot of those. It seems like now there's an enterprise built around it, but I definitely understand it and actually excites me when people say, I'm rejecting this version of Christianity that is not a transformative hope. I think that that's a good thing because there is something within humanity that will not settle for something that is not an all-consuming, enduring, and lasting hope. And so the, re the same way that we reject 401ks as a hope for our life and that we reject a gospel that is, let's win the next election, that same rejection I get excited about because it means we're saying, no, there has to be more. And so I hope and I pray that you have a hunger to have a hope that you could actually build your whole life around, build your whole eternity around. Because if you don't, just walk away from it. That's even what the Apostle Paul says in one of his letters. It's like, look, if this is just a way to organize people, we're to be pitied. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then like this whole thing is a sham. So you must have a hope that's that kind of breaking to the very depths of humanity, a resurrection of all people. And to live a life without hope is just absurd. And so the question is, is Jesus that kind of hope? Is Jesus the kind of hope that you can build your whole life around, right? I made a really great case for the other, so now it's time for me to make a positive case, right? Jesus, his believable claim, it's like a very believable claim, that he himself was the ushering in of a certain global change. Like, that's the claim that he makes about himself, and it's believable, Jesus came into the world and looked at even the smallest of souls, children, and was like, they get the kingdom of God. Children, the, the noisy ones, the, the ones that don't really understand arithmetic or algebra and can't read, haven't memorized the Bible, don't know anything, the kingdom belongs to them. He came and he said, no, the very smallest matters, the poorest, but also the richest. And he came and he saw these transformation, even minor things. When you think about on a global scale, one person being able to walk, you know, it's like, oh, that's just one person. That's not global change. You know, there's somebody out there doing knee replacements. That's great. No offense, Nate. What you do is great. But we don't stake our whole hope on your career, right? <laughs> but then Jesus also sees and proclaims a hope to the largest scale to a social level that's beyond the micro. When he's talking about a kingdom from heaven coming to earth, good news to the poor and to the rich, he wasn't even talking about a small little society, a little village in Galilee or a little part of Jerusalem. He wasn't even talking about one singular people group. He was talking about, no, no, for the whole earth. Like even as we celebrated at Advent and Christmas and we sing these songs of the angels coming and saying, you know, glory to God in the highest, 
peace and goodwill has come to all humanity. Like Jesus's claim is that he is good news for everyone everywhere. And the claim that he has is this, is that sin, death, and evil are the problem. Like this is the actual Christian message, that sin distorts and perverts and twists and messes literally every human relationship up. The the thing, we might call it all sorts of other things like brokenness, or we might call it my own personal issues or my family background or my Enneagram number. You might put a lot into that bucket, but it is the thing that drives you and you experience from other people where you're not treated as a full human and you don't treat other people as full humans. And then the other aspect of it is death. The Christian message is death is the problem that we weren't actually created to decompose and to rot underground. Like that that wasn't the the end result for humans made and created. This is is a phenomenally unique aspect of all like comparative religions. Christianity says, no, we weren't made to die. Death is actually the most unhuman thing you can do. Uh, And then it also, Christian message says that evil is the problem. The, the absence of good, the, the suffering and the, the sort of cartel-like whole organization of humanity just enacting sin and death on each other without any regard for humanity or what this earth was created to be. That's evil. So Christian message says that's the problem. Uh, nothing else, like if you're going to solve the world, it has to solve those things. And if you look to the things that people put their hope in, they don't really work. There's no viable solution, you know, it seems like, eradicate those things. Humans try to create good rules and like, we're going to keep people from sinning. You know, even elementary schools now have the highest level of mindfulness classes there's ever been, right? Mindfulness wasn't even a word when we were kids. Now it's a word. Kids are doing mindfulness. Sadly, though, like that doesn't solve kids bullying each other at all or noticing differences and calling them out, or mistreating or stealing lunches, or kids sneaking off to do different things in the schools. But like, so no amount of rules, no amount of like, what can we do as humanity actually solves sin. We've tried really hard with different medicines and approaches, but at the end of the day, people die. Like we can do surgeries, heart transplants, inside babies, in utero, But that baby that gets that heart transplant, we kind of know no amount of science will ever actually take away their future death. It's a sad, like, reality of life. doesn't matter how much science we develop. Evil, like, we really thought the United Nations was going to do that, you know? We thought, oh, let's have a department of human rights. Let's define what genocide is. Let's, let's, Let's sign agreements on how many nuclear bombs we will create. And it doesn't eradicate evil. So the hope of Jesus is actually this, that in his death on the cross, he assumes sin. All of humanity and all of the wrong and all of the misstuff that we do all over the place, he assumes sin on himself. On the cross, he dies. While we're still sinners going around in this plan, he says, this is the solution. Me, God, I will die for you. His 
his death is this certainty of death. It's like, well, yeah, what happened to Jesus happens to all of us. But then his resurrection completely overturns death. The the whole issue with death is like, when you're dead, you're dead, except for Jesus. He rises from the dead and promises to all a resurrection to us as well. Uh, Evil, he crushes it under his feet. He comes, he says, I am the Lord of heaven and earth. Like, this is me. Like, I, am, I have not just battled sin. I haven't just battled death. I'm now putting all evil powers underneath my feet. That's the message of Jesus. But he goes further. He doesn't just solve the problems. He goes even further and he says, I'm gonna make all things new and I'm gonna be with you always. Like you will never walk alone. Jesus being with you, embodying you, totally transforming you one day after the next as you see sin and death eradicated in your own life as you become a whole new creation. Like that is the message of Jesus. Yeah, amen, good stuff. Some of y'all think it's good. No, I'm just kidding. You all think it's good. I can tell. Anyway, so how can we know that? really quickly. How can we know that that his claim is good? There's kind of two ways. There's the primary source. This is so nerdy. I'm sorry, but I'll make it cool. There's a primary source, and then there's the primary sources. The primary source is this. You can look to Jesus himself. Tupac Shakur famously said, if you want to know if somebody's real, listen to what they say and follow how they live. He had different expletives in there, but that's what he said. He said, if you really want to know who someone is, look at what they say and see how they live. That's how you can find the real ones. And so if you're like, how do I know if Jesus is my lasting hope? You don't find that on CNN.com. You don't find that on Instagram. You don't find that at looking at business reports or whatever they are in your meetings. You find that in the primary source of who is Jesus What did he say? How did he live? He's sad about it. And so that's that's what you have to do. You have to look to him. Just a brief word on this. Uh, Gandhi famously said, but he didn't actually say this, but he famously said that I I like you Christians. I don't like, or I like Christ. I don't like the Christians. Uh, He said that he was being interviewed by a philosophy professor from Harvard He wrote an article about it in 1927, and he kind of made up those words and put them into Gandhi because it was what Gandhi believed. And you can look at Gandhi's life, and he did believe that. He looked at Tolstoy, what he wrote about the kingdom of God within you. He looked at Jesus as a figure, and he said, I like Jesus. I just don't like Christians, and so I'm out on Christianity. I think Gandhi was super wrong because if you like Jesus, you can like Jesus. It's not rational to abandon something because you don't like the people who also like him. It would be like saying, ah, this Monet painting, I think the Monet painting is good, but you know what? I'm going to say it's trash because the guy who put the frame around it, like this is a bad frame. Like why do they use gold and stuff? And the lighting is bad. So this whole painting is crap. Monet wasted his life painting the lilies. Like you don't do that right? Or in the same way, if you come to the Grand Canyon, and hopefully you all do, some of y'all went recently, 
you go to the Grand Canyon, you see the sun rise over it. We went once and it was snowing, just glorious and wonderful. It would be completely absurd to go and say, the Grand Canyon is terrible because that park ranger was mean to me, right? Like that would be absurd. If Grand Canyon, super overrated. It's ugly, I don't like it. One side note, funny thing to do is to read Yelp reviews of natural parks. Because there are people that do that, but it is on its face absurd. So if you want to know if Jesus is worth hoping in, listen to his words, watch what he did, find all of that. Do not reject or abandon Christianity or Jesus himself because you do not like the people that surround him. Don't allow those who claim Jesus but reject him with their lives to cause you to reject Jesus with your life. Then there's, so that's, that's the primary source. Look to Jesus. How are you going to look to Jesus? You have to look at the sources and the people that wrote about Jesus. Reading the Gospels. Sometimes people are like, oh, the Gospels are clearly, you know, people with an agenda and you can't trust the Gospels because the Gospels are written by people who believed in Jesus, right? That makes sense? That's like what we say about different things. Except that we kind of believe that Alexander the Great did the things that Alexander the Great did. And the way we know that Alexander the Great did those things is because he wrote about them himself and the people that he liked wrote about them also. We know what Plato thought because of what Plato wrote and his students wrote. That's how we know what Socrates wrote because Plato wrote about it. Uh, we know that Cleopatra lived and we know what she did and we know how she acted because of the people in her court that wrote about it. You can study primary sources. Uh, you can study people who are actually in the know. Even when we want to read about presidencies long past, we want to read about those presidencies from people who served in their cabinet, who were their chief of staff, right? You don't want to learn about, like if I wrote a book about President Jimmy Carter's rule and reign or whatever, you'd be like, well, how does he know he wasn't alive when that happened? And he didn't know Jimmy Carter, right? You would want to know the people who knew him. Sometimes people will also come and say, well, the Gospels are just stories that were told at campfires. And so people tell a story. If you've ever played the game Telephone, where you whisper something into someone's ear, and then they whisper it to another person, and then that makes the story really weird. And you kind of develop these myths around them, kind of like the myth about Gandhi. Like he didn't actually say, you know, I like Christ, but I don't like Christians. So you're like, oh, that's probably what happened with the Gospels. It just gets chain reaction. Except we can see the Gospels as a comprehensive eyewitness account. That you have all of these people who are giving their names where they live so that you can go and look them up. And they're testifying like they would in a court. This is what I saw. This is what has happened. That's what the Gospels are. Uh, they're, they're not just uh, people creating myths, they're oral histories, not oral traditions. People saying themselves, this is what happened. Uh, the Gospels are not a collective memory of a people shaped and formed over time. They're actually a robust history of verbal tellings of what they actually experienced. So you can imagine like if an earthquake or a hurricane happened in our city, and thousands of people got online to talk about it, right? And how, what happened and how they experienced it on social media. If you wanted to know what happened and what the earthquake meant, 
you would go then diligently and talk to all of the people that experienced it, right? And you would gather up all of those stories of these people that were there and they experienced it and you would put it together and that would be a collective history, not a collective myth, right? The same is true if you think about uh, even a famous case where George Floyd was killed on a sidewalk and there are many witnesses, right? And what, they, what the, the, the person did, the, the prosecutor, is they gathered all of those witnesses. They wrote them down. They corroborated them. Then they had a trial and they all shared, right? And it didn't matter where the person was from, if they were just a, a person who lived on the street or if they were a passerby or if it was their car, or any of those things, none of those things discounted their actual eyewitness account, right? And that's what we have in the Gospels. Richard Bauckham, he's a Cambridge professor. He's retired now, but he's really great. He wrote this book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Covers this in like 2,000 pages. But in it, he says this. He says, trusting testimony is not an irrational act of faith that leaves critical rationality aside. Trusting is, on the contrary, the rationally appropriate way of responding to an authentic testimony. The Gospels are reliable eyewitness accounts. So if you want to know, can I hope in Jesus? You can look to Jesus and you can look to the sources and what they wrote about Jesus is very trustworthy. So there it is, right? That's how we hope. That's what we hope in. That's how we can know it. Those are some very smarty things for me to say, right? Uh, They fill me with lots of confidence, right? Hopefully. Maybe it makes you think I'm not crazy. I can be a smart person in this world and believe this stuff. I hope it does that. But there is this reality of how we step into this hope that I started with. I want it to confirm for you. I want it to be an affirmation to you that hope in Jesus is worthwhile and is all-consuming. You aren't crazy. But I do think that what Paul says here is a genuine prayer for a people that that the God of hope would fill them with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that God fills us with hope. And so I think even today as, you, as we come and as we end, it's like there's these real smart arguments that I made that I think are important. That's why I spent time doing it. But I think it actually begins with a genuine longing of God, can you fill my life with hope? It's that kind of surrender. To to ask of that of Jesus is to not ask of it from anything else. And to just say, I want Jesus to be my lasting and my enduring hope. And so as we come and take communion, I want to invite you to even make that confession about other things that you might be hoping in, to take the bread, to take the wine. I also ask you to proclaim to one another the hope that you have in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for this morning, this powerful morning. I thank you for the smallest and the largest souls in this room and that we get to be together and praise you. I pray that we would come around the table now and see you as transcendent hope. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.